0: Hello, my name is Andrew, and welcome to the Gnarly Brains Podcast. The purpose of this podcast is to explore the causes, objective effects on the physical body, and subjective lived experience of the community of people with disabilities. Through this exploration, I hope to bring to light the best practices for those educators, healthcare providers, parents, caretakers, and people living with disabilities themselves in order to create a life where growth and empowerment are possible. So who am I, and why do I care? As I said, I'm Andrew, and I'm a special education teacher living in Nanaimo, BC, on the unceded territory of the Snenemoch and Staminas people. I've lived a life that has put me in the orbit of people with disabilities for more than 25 years, since I was about 12 years old. I grew up in an unusual environment. My mother was a nurse at Children's Hospital in Vancouver, and worked on what used to be called 3A, the neurology ward. Going to visit her as a young person, I met and befriended many people my age who had neurological traumas and developmental impairments. Kids just like me, only who had conditions like muscular dystrophy, cerebral palsy, head traumas from car accidents or falling off their bikes, and seizure disorders. My mother and her nursing partner were the first nurses in Canada to care for a child with a seizure disorder disorder so severe that she had to receive a hemispherectomy whereby the corpus callosum that connects the brain's hemispheres is severed in order to lessen the severity and frequency of seizures. I spent a lot of time around this young person during her treatment and recovery. A few years later, my mother went to work at Connect Place, a hospice for children with terminal diseases. As a 12-year-old, this grand old mansion filled to the brim with toys, video games, beautiful grounds, and a rotating cast of sports icons seemed like a magical place. I befriended children my age who had conditions that meant they only had several years to live, many of whom also suffered profound neurological impairments to cognition and mobility. As I grew up, I was given the opportunity to go to another magical place, Camp Squamish. This is a summer camp in the beautiful Squamish area, halfway between Whistler and Hope, where I was first a camper and then a counsellor in training for an integrated camp where children with disabilities that would usually prevent them from participating in the fun of camp, canoeing, archery, arts and crafts, horseback riding, were instead supported to the level they needed to be able to participate like fully able children. This experience was foundational to my choice of career path. At camp, kids with disabilities and a few able bodied children spent time together as equals, and the idea that people with disabilities were members of the community like anyone else became deeply ingrained in me. In my 20s, I worked as a care aide for the Developmental Disabilities Association of BC. Here I met firsthand the deeply unsatisfactory situation that many people with disabilities find themselves in. Living situations varied in terms of quality and comfort. In the best cases, adults had their physical and social needs taken care of while being given a modicum of autonomy over their lives. In the worst cases, overtaxed and undertrained staff warehoused and contained stigmatized patients in behavioral crises in their rooms, with very little outside contact available. I met plenty of very committed and underpaid workers trying their best with limited resources, as well as some situations that would absolutely make your skin crawl. In my mid twenties, I got a teaching degree and traveled, first teaching south in Mexico and the north in northern BC. For a while, I did not make people with disabilities my main focus, though of course I encountered them in the school system and in the wider world. By my 30s, I went to work at a school for children with autism, where I found a concentrated source of knowledge on the theoretical underpinnings of the condition, as well as a wellspring of knowledge and practices in treatment methodologies. Next, I found work in the First Nations School, where I met many incredible people who were building up Indigenous education from the ground. I came to understand that in the First Nations community, deep traumatization by the education system, prison system, and hospital system, as well as the deep historical racism of white Canada, has created a situation in which many developmental disabilities can be found in high incidence within this community. But where great tragedy occurs, so too does great resilience. Not only are these Indigenous communities a locus of concentration for disabilities, such as fetal alcohol spectrum disorder, as well as other disorders of abuse and neglect, but also of innovative approaches to healing that are rooted in the community, the environment, and connection to ancestral teachings. I learned a huge amount in my time in this community. Most recently, I obtained a Master's of Special Education from Vancouver Island University. This work has expanded my understanding of the problems and associated tools available, while giving me the street cred I need to start doing the serious work. I've been a special education teacher in the Cowichan district for five years now, and I have learned so much and met so many interesting people that I think I finally have something to say that could be beneficial to the community I care about so deeply. Finally, I myself was diagnosed with a developmental disability earlier this year. I have high-functioning ADHD, which has affected my life in profound ways. It has only been since I've begun treatment of that ADHD that I've realized what a difference the right treatment can make in my own life. I will go into more detail about that in a future episode. So what are developmental disabilities? What are the physical and psychological effects of these disabilities on the people who live with them? The rest of this episode will be a brief rundown of some of the most common of the developmental disabilities. But first, a brief explanation of word usage which up till now I have been slightly sloppy with. Impairment and disability are not the same thing. An impairment is something you are born with or acquire through trauma. An amputated limb or a congenital blindness in one eye are both examples of impairments. The disability, on the other hand, is a social construct and comes about because of the impaired individual's inability to meet the demands of the society in which they live. So a child with an impairment of the prefrontal cortex, as occurs in, for example, attention deficit disorder, experiences the impairment as a disability when the family, school, and society at large places expectations of behavior and learning upon them that they cannot reach. This distinction is necessary to understand because in our approaches to dealing with the developmental disabilities, educators, therapists, researchers, and the people with impairments themselves... Often conflate the two, and this leads to judgment, shame, othering, and other less-than-optimal outcomes. For example, in my work as a special education teacher, I have often heard well-meaning and caring teachers say things, such as, Johnny is a very smart kid, but his hyperactivity, self stimming behavior, slash social shyness, slash what-have-you, makes it impossible for him to learn in the classroom. Inherited in statements like this are some harmful assumptions. Firstly, that intelligence is an inherent quality that exists independently of other qualities that define a person's lived experience. And secondly, that learning means learning the way and the things that I, the teacher at the front of the room, want to teach. Instead, if we look at Johnny through a holistic lens, we cannot help but see that Johnny's mental and physical impairments are as an integral part of him as the color of his eyes or the length of his fingers, a part of what makes Johnny, Johnny and not a set of qualities that exist outside of Johnny that can be changed or improved upon in isolation. This isn't to say that Johnny will be forever stuck in the same behavioral or intellectual mode, but it is to say that the mindset of intervention, in which EAs, ABAs, teachers, and other professionals attempt to isolate and change certain behaviors one at a time, is rather destined to fail, since they do not treat Johnny as a whole, but rather as a set of symptoms. But More on that in future episodes. Broadly speaking, developmental disabilities are a class of disabilities that can trace their roots back to the very earliest stages of embryonic development. At some point during the gestation of a fetus within the womb, or shortly after birth, during second gestation, that extended period of time when human infants continue to develop rapidly outside the womb, something unexpected happens. For some reason or another, the fetus or infant develops along an unusual or atypical trajectory. The result of this atypical development is an individual that experiences impairments in physical, learning language, and or behavioral domains that can persist through a lifetime. After all, developmental disabilities are not things that people recover from. They are not a broken arm or a bout of the flu. To have a developmental disability is to be formed differently. Therefore, it makes no sense to think in terms of healing, as in, if only this leg would heal, this child could run. Instead, parents, educators, and care aides, when considering the best practices of care and education, have the best results when they take the individual holistically and think in terms of support and development, such that as impaired as development has been till the present moment, it can be enabled towards future growth. Neither support or development, however, are sufficient on their own. An expectation of development without support is to expect the affected individual to do the impossible. This situation is all too common in an overtaxed school system, where students are expected to meet expectations of behavior and physical and academic performance that they are not capable of meeting, and then punished or excluded for failing to meet these expectations. The final result of this approach is marginalization, dropping out of education, social isolation, and dark depression. The inverse situation, where supports are offered without the expectation of development, is more difficult to spot, but in my opinion, nearly as harmful. This is the situation where the person with an impairment is contained within a world of so-called supports. Autonomy is quashed, and people with impairments are warehoused in special education classrooms or group homes that provide physical and behavioral support, but contain minimal opportunities or expectations for growth. The final result of this approach is institutionalization an absolutely rigid dependence on a system. This is a situation in which a person is defined by their disability and is never encouraged to grow beyond the societal expectations of their impairments. The best possible situation for people living with developmental disabilities is one in which supports for impairments are maximized, while those factors that treat their impairments as disabilities are minimized and the preconditions for growth are met. This may lead to difficult behaviors emerging at times, but psychological and physical discomfort is necessary for growth, and is in fact a sign that an individual is participating in the world. On the flip side, this mentality can be pushed too far, leading to not discomfort but harm, as the individual is pushed to do things that are so far beyond their capabilities that no amount of support can bridge the gap. These continuous failures write a history inside the individual that destroys confidence and leads to learned helplessness. This is not always an easy line to draw, as the types of impairments that affect the person with a disability often also affect their ability to judge for themselves and communicate the reasoning behind those choices. Nevertheless, workers in the field of developmental disabilities must ensure that they do not fall into the all-too-common trap of thinking about people with developmental disabilities as forever children that must be protected from all challenge and discomfort. In order to become adept at living with, educating, and working with people with developmental disabilities, we must learn to deconstruct our own assumptions about disability and impairment. We must decenter ourselves, our lived experience, our perspectives, and seek to see the world through the eyes of someone with a very different perceptual suite, someone for whom both the hardware of the physical body and the software of learning diverge from the mainline. So what are the big five developmental disabilities, and where do they come from? Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder, Autism Spectrum Disorder, Fetal Alcohol Syndrome, Down Syndrome, and Cerebral Palsy are all found in the general population at rates that almost guarantee any given teacher is going to have a few diagnosed and likely a number of undiagnosed students with the associated impairments in their classroom. As someone around 40... Diagnosis of these disabilities in childhood were often not made unless symptoms were very serious, but as educators, doctors, and psychologists have become more sensitive to the outer manifestations of these conditions, it has become clear that the prevalence of them in the general population makes it certain, to my mind, that you absolutely know at least a few adults with one or another of these conditions, and perhaps suffer undiagnosed yourself. The causes and major symptomatology of these developmental disabilities vary from condition to condition and severity to severity. In some cases, such as FASD and cerebral palsy, the cause of impairment is very well understood. Prenatal exposure to alcohol in the womb in the case of the child with FASD and a hypoxic event, that is, a time with restricted oxygen within the tissues of the motor cortex of the brain, often but not always around the time of the baby's birth, in the case of cerebral palsy. The symptomatology of FASD is perhaps the most varied of any of the conditions I am discussing today, with autism spectrum disorder bringing up a close second place. Alcohol is a systemic poison, affecting every cell in the body, and it is only through a trick of evolution that humans have evolved the capacity to metabolize it at all. The developing fetus exposed to alcohol consumed by the mother through the interface of the bloodstreams in the placenta lacks the ability to process even small amounts of alcohol, which acts as a teratogen, from the Latin monster-forming. Depending on the frequency, amount, and timing of exposure on the developing fetus, any of the developing systems, from cardiovascular, hormonal, digestive, and neurological, can be affected. Thus, FASD is considered a spectrum disorder, like ADHD and autism, because the presentation of symptoms can be extremely variable. However, along with certain facial features such as smooth philtrum, thin upper lip, upturned nose, flat nasal bridge and midface, epicanthal folds, small palpebral fissures, look up FASD facial features if you're curious what this all means, and small head circumference that occur in some but not all people with FASD. People with this condition are frequently impulsive, irritable, have difficulty with memory and attention, show poor social and communication skills, have difficulty with money, have poor motor skills, and have any number of physical health problems. As a teacher, I've seen many students with FASD, both diagnosed and undiagnosed. For my money, this is the most undiagnosed condition because it can only be given if the mother admits that she was drinking during pregnancy. Thus, these students often have huge difficulties in school that go unsupported. Depending on the severity of these impairments, they often need a large number of different supports to be able to function in class. They also often present some of the most difficult behavioral challenges to a classroom, and learning to treat these students inclusively rather than pushing them to the fringe is a major undertaking for any teacher. As a compassionate, feeling person, my heart goes out to people with FASD. As a teacher, I have found students with FASD to be some of the most difficult to deal with. On the other hand, Down syndrome is a relatively straightforward. It is caused by a replication error at the very earliest stages of development, when the zygote that will eventually develop into a fetus and then a baby is only a small clump of cells. This replication error, called nondisjunction means that the cells of the developing infant have an extra copy of chromosome 21. This extra chromosome affects the developmental trajectory of the fetus in well-understood ways. Developmentally, the result of this extra chromosome is to alter the growth trajectory such that the individual with Downs has a characteristic look. Flat-faced, small head, short neck, protruding tongue, slanted eyes, unusually formed and small ears, poor muscle tone, broad, short hands with a single crease in the palm, and hyperflexibility of the joints, though not all of these symptoms may be present in every individual with Downs. It is often associated with mild to severe cognitive impairment. Language is delayed and may not be acquired at all, and long and short-term memory are affected. The lifespan of people with Downs is also affected, and many don't make it beyond their 40s. Though I haven't personally worked with very many children with Downs in the school system, I did spend some time as a residential aide in a group home for adults with Downs syndrome. My impression was that people with this condition often have a very sweet disposition and a sensitivity to the emotional states of others, as well as a sense of humour that belies a perceptive and curious mind that shines through potential cognitive issues. The causes of the spectrum disorders, minus fetal alcohol syndrome, on the other hand, are not nearly as well understood. ADHD is often considered to be the result of disordered attachment, coupled with a genetic predisposition towards neurological sensitivity our nerves fire with less stimulation than other people. During the process of development, a child with such neurological sensitivity who will develop ADHD seeks to have their basic psychological needs for safety met through the ways available to infants crying, making eye contact with a caregiver, rooting for the breast, and so forth. Yet for whatever reason, the comforting that the infant sought was not available in the quantity or quality that is physiologically demanded during key periods of the infant's development. This causes the prefrontal cortex, the part of the brain that makes decisions about what stimuli to attend to and which to discard, to become lazy and slow to activate. The result is a youth and then an adult whose attention filter is broken, who experiences consciousness as a flood of stimuli all vying for attention without a good way to choose between them. The downstream effects of this impairment include inability to attend, a poor memory, Poor planning of movements such as clumsiness or hyperkinetic movements, poor time and money management, and a generalized disassociation. From the perspective of disability, ADHD often comes with feelings of failure, depression, inability to fit in, and an inconsistent work and relationship history filled with intense ups and downs. The roots of autism are even more obscure. It is likely that there is a genetic component, but genes alone certainly do not explain the variation in symptoms, nor the differences in their rate of appearance in the population. There might be an infectious disease component, as it is possible that microorganisms acting in ill-understood ways at various points of development might have something to do with some cases of autism. There might be an epigenetic component, that is, not the inherited genes from mother and father. But the particular expression of those genes as affected by the environmental factors affecting the parents before fertilization or in utero might contribute to the prevalence of autism. There is likely an entire episode in exploring the roots of autism. In any case, the symptomatology of autism is almost as ill-defined as the cause. One of the key defining traits is a regression of language around the third year of life. The child begins to acquire speech, but all of a sudden stops talking beyond single-word utterances or becomes utterly nonverbal. Additionally, children with autism don't make a lot of social eye contact. That is, they don't do the usual thing that human infants do and attempt to make eye contact with their caregivers in order to get needs met. Many people with autism don't speak until much later, if at all, though early intervention strategies can be quite effective at bridging this communication gap. People with autism also frequently have an assortment of other physical and mental challenges. Many have digestive issues, problems with balance, painfully tight muscles, poorly defined core muscles. Psychologically, people with autism often have difficulty communicating thoughts, even if they aren't nonverbal. They also have difficulty with theory of mind, which is a way of saying they cannot understand that the mind of another person might work in a different way than their own, or if they understand that it might they might have difficulty putting themselves into the mind of another. Perceptually, the world of the autistic person might be very different from someone without autism. They may seek sensations that other people would be repulsed by, for example, putting dirt in their mouth. Conversely, they may interpret some very common sensations as uncomfortable or even painful. For example, the colour yellow or a certain tone might cause an autistic person physical pain. Autism is a massive spectrum, and we will definitely explore it more in future episodes. Of all the disabilities listed here, it has perhaps the most mysterious origins and the largest amount of pseudoscientific woo surrounding it. In future episodes, my intention is to deep dive into these conditions and others. For example, obsessive-compulsive disorder, oppositional defiance disorder, and traumatic brain injuries. I will explore their causes, their physical and psychological ramifications of living with them, and the available strategies and supports in treating and living with them. I hope to have some special guests on the pod to help center the lived experience of those with disabilities and maybe share some amusing antidotes at the same time. This is Andrew signing off. Thanks for listening to the Gnarly Brains Podcast.